are listening to the EWN Podcast Network. Hello, this is Dr. Judy Cook welcoming you to Shrink Wrapped, a place where you can shrink away some of your problems and find more rapture in this incredible life. I am so thrilled today to have as a guest Shirley Millis from Santa Fe, or actually Galisteo, New Mexico. Uh, she's an author. Uh, and has a uh, fascinating history of being a longtime business writer, travel writer, newspaper columnist who traveled the world interviewing everyone from busboys to heads of international organizations, and then set up a career in public relations of all places in Washington, D.C. Her story actually is a memoir about her life in finding love a second time. Uh, and this woman, who is a graduate of Vassar, uh, has written a very beautiful, wonderful, inspiring memoir that I would encourage all of you to read. It is called Banged Up Heart. So, Shirley, welcome to the show. I look forward to interviewing you and letting our readers hear your tremendous story. Thank you, Judy. <laughs> it's a pleasure <laughs> to, to be on your show. So it's a delight to have you here. So you have a lot of stuff in your life that has to do with overcoming uh, a lot of stress and especially a lot of loss. And uh, you've found a way through a lot of that with your writing about your personal things. Uh, you're so good at speaking because of all of your history of, of writing and interviewing and everything. So let me just start by saying, what is the most important thing you would like to convey to the audience about this whole experience with John? Well, Judy, that's a <laughs> provocative <laughs> question. <laughs> and I don't know if I can get it down to one thing. Okay. <laughs> I, I just, I, I think that... Um, I'm just going to talk about loss for, for this moment, and I, I do think it's important that people, when they do suffer the loss of someone beloved, that they do allow themselves to grieve and eventually uh, step out of what I would call the cocoon of grief to become comfortable as a survivor and to experience joy in just being alive. Uh, that's, uh, that's where I am now. And uh, it didn't happen immediately, but it, it did happen. And um, at, at one point, I thought, well, how am I going to define myself? Am I just going to be defined as John's widow or Joe, my first husband's widow? And if so, I should just put on my black widow's weeds and be done with it. But then I thought, well, I, I can't fulfill their unfulfilled dreams because I think I have to have my own dreams. I mean, I tried. I tried to fulfill some of John's dreams unrealized, dealing with photography, and then just, just realized I couldn't. And so I said, okay, Shirley, it's time for you to have your own dreams and go for them. Good. Yeah, you, you, you seem to be very dedicated for a while to preserving uh, their mem memory and, and their dream, dreams. I know you, you talked about the grief over 
Joe, uh, really totally wrapping up your life for a couple of years. Not surprising because you were married, what, 31 years? About 30 years, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and one thing that actually I just, when I was married, when Joe died, I mean, it was a sudden, unexpected, and, and because of that shocking death for me, um, even though he was much older than I, but he had surgery to replace his aortic valve, and we were both concerned about his surviving that surgery. Mm-hmm. But he did, he did, but 17 days later, he died in a rehab center where he was regaining his strength to come home. And at the time, I was working, and I, I, I was very, you know, I was, I was glad that I had a job to go back to because it allowed me to focus on something other than my grief. But at the same time, when I look back on it, I think it, that sort of delayed my engaging with grief. I... I it was a year later, a year after Joe's death, that I was having my annual physical, and at least two of my doctors said, well, you know, the usual question, what's been happening, what's happened to you this past year, Shirley? And I, <laughs> I, you know, so I just sort of blurted out my husband died, and then I just started sobbing uncontrollably. And, and each of them said, well, are you seeing somebody? Are you discussing? I said, no, no. <laughs> so it was after that that I found a therapist. And I joined a grief group, oh. um, and so you know. So I, I, I thought you know, if you have a job after, after you experience a loss, a big loss, it's it's fortunate because you can go back and there's a structure and you don't have to think about yourself. You can't. But the downside is that maybe it just sort of delays necessary grieving. And, and sometimes we just have to uh, to take that time to work through, you know, the, the denial and the shock and, and everything else. And, you know, you had a real horrible double whammy there because three weeks later, your father died. And as you mentioned, that now left you an orphan because both your parents were gone. And so, you know, here you are grieving one significant person and then suddenly another significant person dies. And that had to be just really overwhelming for you. Uh, I'm not surprised you stuffed a lot uh, and you may have thrown even more than usual into your work uh, to deal with that. So, so tell me how it was to deal with that double whammy. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know for whom I was grieving. You know, I didn't. I first I was grieving for Joe, and then I and I think I was just grieving for myself, actually, because I can sort of remember being at the memorial service. I do remember, not sort of memorial service for my father and my brother saying to me, "Shirley," he said, "Are you going to be all right?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, you just keep crying. <laughs> said, oh, really? I'm, I'm not crying. He says, well, you're weeping. I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so in uh, any, any case, I guess I stopped weeping, and then, <laughs> then I started all over again a year later. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, and then what was so helpful to me in the uh, grief group. There were eight of us, one man, seven women, a widower, and the rest widows. 
Mm-hmm. And e- each person talked about the experience when they felt like talking. And what I learned from that, hearing so many of the, the spouses had died of cancer, and there had been innumerable surgeries, all sorts of very painful uh, moments for the, for the survivors to to live through. And and I almost felt lucky, you know, that that Joe's death had been so sudden. I didn't have to go through that <laughs> that they had to go through. But <laughs> but I think I I learned empathy. I mean, hearing other people talk, I learned to be more empathetic, and um, I think I today I'm very empathetic with with what people have to go through. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm glad at least that you were able to allow yourself to weep some at the beginning, and I, I find your brother's response interesting. I think it's quite an interesting commentary on how we still tend to have a whole lot of problem in society dealing with feelings, legitimizing feelings, letting them be out in the in the open. We we tend to uh to stigmatize and, and, and not want to deal with them and yet that was a very important part of your getting well, wasn't it? Yes. And I and, and I guess some people you know, as you the word stigmatize is so good. I mean it's sort of like, well, you know, just get on with it. <laughs> get on with yourself. <laughs> and I tend to be a sort of a get on with it type. I mean, with things other than death. <laughs> just, you know, yeah. little things. Death is a big one, but even those those little things are, are important to address. And uh, being able to talk with someone or being able to do uh, another thing that is very, very helpful, which is to write about what you're going through, whether that's because you need to forgive someone or you're angry and you need to process it. Writing is such a wonderful tool, if you can do it without criticizing or editing yourself while you're doing it, to let yourself get those feelings out and process them. And then you don't have to worry that, oh my God, am I burdening my my friends or my family with my pain? It doesn't then allow other people to benefit from being there helping you. And I think you have found in writing this memoir that it was a sort of an expanded version of that whole thing about writing your pain and certainly is something helpful to people. And I know you wanted to talk about that whole process of writing memoirs. So talk about what you'd like to share with people about that. Judy, I I spent three three years writing a first draft, and and, and it turned out to be, you know, (laughs) four books in one. But I felt at the at some point that I that something was missing. I didn't know what, and um, and then when I met and I was looking for an editor and I met her and it, it became clear through talking with her that what I had written and I, I had I, I was a history major in college and so I had a healthy regard for original sources. I, I hadn't read many novels but my original sources were my emails which I, I sent out regularly. I sort of hate for people to call me on the phone sometimes I mean in stressful times. Uh-huh. So I would put down, it was like a chronicle of what was going on with John and and me. 
Mm-hmm. And I would send these out, and then I would also I also kept a, a journal. So those were my sources. But what I had written was really the visible. I'm calling it the visible story, the outside mm-hmm. story. It wasn't what was going on inside me, mm-hmm. and I had suppressed a lot of that. And the edit editor Morgan Farley simply would simply say, "Well, what were you feeling?" And I mean, just the simple <laughs> questions, and I—I I mean, I, I had to go into a whole nother zone. I mean, I really relived the visible experience, but sort of from the inside out. And and then I also learned that in a memoir, you all you have to you have to be able to reflect on those experiences from where you are now, in order to to make sense of them or to see, you know, what was going on. And um, so that's how, that that was the rewrite. In the rewriting, and I did mention that I I, I had to use the, the techniques of novel writing to make my memoir come alive, which is theme setting and character through through um, dialogue and 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 this and reflection, which is not part of novel writing, but it's necessary for memoir writing. Um, Absolutely, that was what I experienced when I and I spent three years rewriting. <laughs> so it was a long wow. process, <laughs> but hopefully a very constructive journey for you. Because I do um, think it it um, it allowed me to breathe again. <laughs> so, I just it was sort of like I was taking deep and full breath. <laughs> and you know, when I was writing, I mean, you you mentioned you know the the last few chapters. I must have really worked on the suspense and all. I I honestly I didn't work on the suspense. I there was a lot of drama mm-hmm. in the last weeks of John's life, a lot. And so I was just reading writing it as it happened, mm-hmm. and I was. Panting as I was fighting, <laughs> <laughs> and um, but where I was concerned about engaging the reader was after John's death, and I wanted the reader to stay with me to see what happened to me after I sort of sank into the grief cocoon, <laughs> and bit by bit came out, and. Uh, I I thought that was important, and that's why I say my my book is not a book of mourning. It's I think it's a book of uh, it's hope, and resilience, and uh, I mean some people say courage. I I don't I don't know, uh, but it's it's with my experience and it's whether you know how it's applicable to others. I'm not not quite sure. Well, I, I, th- I think it's very applicable for anybody going through grieving, uh, and and you you again you you just you discuss your your struggle with uh, first of all stuffing yourself down after Joe died, and how you were really locked up. You know, you had a friend who said, you know, surely life goes on. You're still alive. Oh, that's um. right. <laughs> Stranger. I mean, and she worked in my office. She was the receptionist, and she steps out. She she was a very bold personality. I really was crazy about her. I didn't know her very well, but she says, "Tell me, do you have a social life?" 
<laughs> this is about two years after Joe has died. Uh-huh. And I said, do you know, Verdella, not much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, girl, remember, you are alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, it was just, her words really hit me. I mean, they rattled my brain. And mm-hmm. that weekend, I took off my wedding ring, my anniversary rings, and I put them in boxes at mm-hmm. the back of a drawer. And then I felt totally naked, <laughs> so, uh-huh. as though I were sending a message that I wasn't quite ready to believe. It's that outward invisible sign to yourself that life has indeed changed. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you found an editor that helps you say not just the facts, ma'am. Let's get into the feelings because that's where we have to go to grow. And, and to heal, you know, our, our, our feelings are, are the most important part of us. They're kind of like the operating system on the computer that helps facilitate everything else working. And neglecting that can cause everything to crash and burn. So I'm, yeah. I'm really glad yeah. she made you do that. I, I, was, I was so fortunate. I was so fortunate. She, does, she herself has an interesting story. I mean, she... She was. Te- she's Canadian, and she got her PhD at London School of Economics in, in literature and all. And she be- she was a teacher of writing, and she said at some point that she found that her students, she felt that they were blocked from ex- not able to express emotions as you've just described. And and so she became a therapist. And she's a certified therapist, and <laughs> wow. she's, a, she's also a poet, <laughs> and she's. She's she's uh, she's she's a poet and a teacher, right? And a therapist. And I I thought that was a very interesting combination. I I think it worked very well for me. That, that uh, takes no. bibliotherapy to a whole new level, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I can know, I know people who are editors, and they would never say, "Well, what were you feeling?" <laughs> <laughs> They would just be, let's get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a time when the feeling was so intense when John was so sick that not only was he contemplating suicide, there was a little contemplation for both of you uh, about a, a joint suicide. That had to be a very, very tough and very emotional journey for you. I'm certainly glad that it didn't work that way. And what words of wisdom can you give to people when they're going through that terribly intense time? They know that someone they love, and and in your case, someone who had almost brought you back to life, was now going to be uh, leaving you, because that that was a very tough journey. And it it was, I think that John was someone who had, I mean, he'd staved off this cancer for 18 years, and he he was very much in control. I mean, he didn't allow people to pity him, or and he didn't allow, he didn't invite discussion of his mm-hmm. condition at all. And that was his way of controlling things and keeping them sort of off that subject and upbeat and looking forward. And then I think suddenly when he, found i mean he knew that that he he couldn't control it anymore 
mm-hmm. and he, and his in a sense when he opted against the final treatment that was control but but he was accept he was accepting that it was that he was terminal and uh, I think maybe to some extent he he was concerned about concerned about how I would survive after he was gone mm-hmm. and so we did. I mean, my first husband Joe had all these books in the library on, you know, but Derry Comfrey and others uh, about ex about dying, mm-hmm. and I had kept these because I thought, you know, one day I'm probably going to need to read these myself. Uh-huh. So I just, you know, we I pulled them from the library, and John and I read various passages to each other, and um, in doing that, I I found myself thinking, well, you know, I, I want to survive. I, you know, I'm going to survive. You know, my love for John was so very profound. But if he, if I could help him, if this is the route he wanted to go for himself, I would do everything to help him that I could. But he wasn't in pain. And um, any case, so what came out of that for me was just sort of the recognition that I really wanted to live, and uh, I would, and then I knew John couldn't, but I, and I would do whatever I could to help him, you know, act as, as he wanted. In any case, we both dismissed the possibility. I, I, I had, you know, I wanted to live, and he, he felt it just wasn't possible to, uh, to actually do it without help, and he was too weak to go to Oregon. And at that point, California hadn't passed that. Doctors can assist with death legislation, uh, but but of course we were in Virginia then. But it was an eye opener to me. I mean, to see that I did want to live. I didn't want to a double suicide. Okay, so you did find meaning in life despite its twists and turns that were often very difficult and painful. And it it sounds like you took that big, big load of horse manure and turned it into some fertilizer for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I did, uh, unlike after Joe's death, when I really went back to work, I wasn't working when John died, but I did spend time in Santa Fe where I'd scattered his ashes. uh, There was a, and I did a lot of weeping, and then... I sort of I decided I was going back to an art store where we, where we both were we bought art together in downtown Santa Fe, but I never got there. I got distracted by these uh, these wild hairs made out of wood in the windows of a folk art store in downtown <laughs> Santa Fe, and this one with this dangle of red and green chilies just spoke to me, and I thought, oh gosh, I just so I ended up taking that wild hair home <laughs> that, that was I sort of feel that was the beginning sort of my first step of, of trusting my myself to make a, a life I mean to, to trusting my own instincts I mean that hair went into what would have been the photo studio for John but mm-hmm. now and I would never have had the hair <laughs> now there was the hair and then then the hair got companions. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> yeah. 
Rabbits it, multiply. It, yeah, they, they do. <laughs> they certainly do out here in Galisteo. <laughs> oh. Then I sort of, I started, you know, making my my nest or making uh, the condo that we had shared, where we had had a condo here and then in, in Virginia, making it mine and mm-hmm. uh, part of my journey to to fulfill to to, to find me <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and uh and to live i mean it's just yeah. um, so so, so I, the, I guess... the life life with john was extreme highs and then the extreme lows of helping him through that and a lot of lessons and my sense is if the universe came down and said you got to go through it again you probably would uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know that, um, you know, you mentioned denial, uh, and that John and I made, it seemed evident that there was a lot of denial at work when he was so ill. I don't think there was time for denial. I think uh, there was a bit of a shipboard romance to, to our relationship. It mm-hmm. happened fairly quickly, and it was very passionate, and we were living uh, intensely until, wham, it, we couldn't. And it was, it was, I think if we'd been married for, t- say, 20 or 30 years, and I had seen his health decline over the years, then I would have been more, you know, we would have been more forthright about what was happening, because the evidence was there, but I didn't have that evidence. <laughs> you know, I, I was just sort of in the moment saying, oh, my God, we've got this wonderful life, and we've got to save it. We've got to preserve this. Mm-hmm. And I think he, you know, he was into that, too, to an extent, though I, I think he was he was wiser and more accepting than I of um, the end. <laughs> Let's take a short break now, and when we return, we're going to discuss some of the gifts and lessons from Shirley's experience. You're listening to the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com. Welcome back to Shrinkwrapped, where we're interviewing Shirley Mellis, author of Banged Up Heart. So what do you feel was the biggest gift that John gave to you and the biggest gift that you gave to John in your brief couple years together? He, he had this wonderful expression. Oh, I, I, he said, you know, it's important to have plans. Life interferes, but it's important to have plans. Mm-hmm. And he lived that way. I mean, he had plans. He had all kinds of plans, and he had had things that had happened that had dashed those plans to bits. But he didn't look back with regret. He just kept looking ahead. And 
of living in the moment just as much as possible and i i I feel that that he helped me to do that and to you know sort of relish the moment and to make plans as well but to try to you know relish the moment as much as possible and i think i i'm my gift to him may have been that i was someone with whom he could share things that he hadn't been able to share with anyone before i mean it just i mean he he was a rocket scientist and <laughs> that really <laughs> At, you know, at the beginning, he told me about his cancer diagnosis when we first took a walk together, when I didn't know I'd ever see him again. I mean, he was not in my window. I mean, he just was there. <laughs> and he told me about that, and um, and he said there, there were, uh, you know, he controlled it through periodic infusions of rituxan, which is a drug similar to chemo but different, mm-hmm. and that there was a backup treatment in the wings. So he was so positive about his health that later when we did get together, I wasn't concerned about his health. I mean, I was concerned about our differences because here he was, this rocket, a real rocket scientist, and I'd been nearly done done in by algebra. And you know, my, <laughs> my, high, my high school principal used to laugh. He tutored me, and he used to laughingly call me Euclid Mellis. Now, <laughs> I just... And, you know, so John just laughed it off. He said, oh, you know, I can't imagine being involved romantically with a scientist. And, you know, just consider the math and science as something odd I do in my work. I have lots of other interests. So, um, you know, so in any case, that... But but your gift is on the other side of the brain. That stuff where you use words and interpersonal skills. And that's a big gift, too. So... Don't you ever short sell that as a very important thing and probably a part of the gift that you gave to John. It probably is, I I think. Because at some point I said, well, I'm glad we've crammed in so much. And then I said, but I think you've always crammed in a lot. And then he said, yes, he says, but it was solitary often. Mm -hmm. And so I felt, you know, he had been married before, and he, and, but maybe he hadn't shared in the way we had shared. And, you know, we were, all, we were both at different stages. We'd both retired, and so we could, you know, he could give himself, give in to his passion of photography and landscape photography and his dream of being acclaimed as a, a valued photographer. And, uh, and I could do my writing, and it was sort of a... A wonderful match in that sense. I mean, the time of life was good. I mean, we were, you know, we were both we were both orphans by then. <laughs> we <were> both, <laughs> and we could and we could, uh, you know, create our lives together. And we had both worked, so uh, financially we were we were all right. And he was still he was still doing some consulting too. So I, I guess I did get I did get I. I did give him a gift of, yes. you know, of, of companionship. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and and opening up a bit more about who he was and being in touch with his feelings. That's something he had not really had the gift of most of his life. So that was a very important thing. You know, you, you, you were, you, you had enough restriction on yourself that it wasn't overwhelm for him because if you had been one of these bubbly over overwhelming with emotions 
he wouldn't have been able to cope with that. You could meet him closer to yeah. a middle ground. That's, pro- that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. Now, I it's very it's interesting to me. You know, I you mentioned Frank. I'm Frank, um, mm-hmm. and um, I dedicated my book to Frank. And and uh, and I I should should say that I was almost complete. I had almost completed my first draft when a, through a well-intentioned female friend I met Frank mm-hmm. and. It was Frank who, not having read my manuscript, um, but knowing that I wanted an editor, led me led me to my editor through people he knew, sure. and and I started the hard work of, of rewriting after we married, uh, and he was he was supportive, so supportive of my persevering to do this, that in the end I felt that I. I I was so grateful to him that I needed to dedicate the book to him. I'm, I'm so... You, how, how is his health? I mean, I should... <laughs> Frank, Frank is older than I am, but he's not as old, much older as Joe. When I first met Frank, I thought he was too old. <laughs> I just said, no, he's too old. But then I met younger men who had less life mm-hmm. and than Frank, and then I met his 100-year-old mother who mm-hmm. was going strong, <laughs> And I thought, you know, just, you know, maybe he has those designer jeans. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so that was all good. And, um, you know, it just... Um, well, and you both share I, an interest in writing, don't you? Pardon? Don't you pardon? both share an interest in writing? No. No? no. Okay. No, he he does... Um, Stone, he he does a lot of things. He he does stone sculpting. He plays he plays golf. He okay. he's involved <laughs> with the symphony. I mean, he's not a musician, but he's uh, at the helm of the this symphony and chorus board. So we we share we 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 share a lot of we we love to travel and we like food and friends and uh, music and art and a lot of things. And I guess one of the things, I mean, the lesson that Frank represents to me, because you asked about what did it, mm-hmm. he represents what I would have missed if I hadn't opened my heart to to love again. Huh? He, he just, he's enriched my life in ways that, well, in countless, in countless ways. I mean, there are the shared likes and pleasures. And he's a widower, so we do have loss in common. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, um, you know, he has a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and and takes delight in in, in living. And um, at the same time, he he does have his individual passions, and I have mine. But then we mm-hmm. come together, and it's 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 wonderful. And I think it's so important the person we choose to spend our time with, because. We both let each other be whatever we are. I mean, it's just That's there's correct. not not overwhelming need to compromise. I mean, there are times we do we have to, but yes, but it's, it's, it's letting letting each other be free. I feel very. I feel as though I'm thriving. So that's very. It's it's very good. I, I mean, I I still. 
I've not forgotten John or Joe or you know, anybody. They they live in my heart. <laughs> but, but you haven't um, given up on living. You're still alive and you're still living life and taking risks. And you know, you you're you're not going to uh go to your creator having not lived life. You you're very much experiencing it. And that's and wonderful. If, if, and I, the one thing, Judy, I mean, if people don't take risks, and, you know, you talk about, well, you know, people are afraid of loss. They're afraid of love. So they're afraid to maybe get involved with somebody. You'll never know if you don't take the chance what you might be missing, what enrichment you might be missing. At the same time, you never know what loss you might incur. And But even with loss, there are gains, at least for me. Even having lost John in a very short period, that that short period was 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 full of of, of wonder and and goodness and and I wouldn't you know I so I wouldn't trade that away for sort of living safe but unfulfilled life. I mean I I think it's important for people to not be afraid to to take a chance. Absolutely. I think that's such an important lesson that, that you do need to live life, take those chances. It's the old phrase, no pain, no gain. Uh, right, and, right. And, and again, you, you look at those painful experiences and look at them as another experience to grow in life in, in yet another way. Uh, learn those lessons and instead of looking at them as horrible, look at what are the gains from them. It's so, so important. Yes. Um, often a slightly different tangent, but it's one that is kind of dear to my heart because I even wrote a book on to die or not to die, uh, tricks to surviving medical care. Uh, you had some difficult problems with the medical system yourself, with both the doctors cutting them off when you went on hospice and issues with the hospice and probably some other things you didn't even delineate in your book. And I just wonder what words of wisdom you might have to pass on to people who may be going through these struggles and don't quite know where to turn. Well, that's it, it's it's a good question where to turn because when John was ill, so so seriously ill, his oncologist was, in my eyes, that the man the person that we turned to because to my to me he was the savior he was going to save john <laughs> if anyone could do it he could do it mm-hmm. and john liked him a lot and da, da, and but as things kept the news kept getting worse and worse on tests that john was undergoing and things that were happening and i was at very feeling frayed, somehow wanting. I wanted someone I could talk with who would who would talk about what John was going through and what I could anticipate and how what I might do to make things more bearable in this mm-hmm. unbearable, unbearable situation. Mm-hmm. And there was no one. I mean, the oncolo- I remember calling the oncologist, you know, sort of hoping that, you know, he could tell me something and I said, you know, those test results, those weren't good. And he said, well, it wasn't the win-win we had hoped for. Well, but I, I needed, there was no, I, if he'd had 
someone on staff, I felt, who knew the the medical situation mm-hmm. and also knew was maybe more socially uh, apt, who wasn't, you know, actually prescribing the care, but could talk with me. Uh-huh. It, it, I would have been comforted in some way. I mean, it wasn't going to, no one was going to tell me a story with a happy ending, but it could sort of say, well, you know, yes, things are going to, to get like this, and, and it might help me to become a little more accepting, because I really had a hard time giving up hope. Yes. And not that I, you know, I just had a hard time with that, um, and, you know, maybe that's all right, but it, it was not really realistic. So on that score, I just wished for someone who could have talked with me, and I thought that someone should have been in the oncologist's office. Mm-hmm. And I, and then in the hospice situation, when John signed up for hospice, the hospice left a big manual at, at home, and, and I read through this. I finally made myself read the manual, and, and then as I read it, I said to John, I said, well, I said, it, it, if you are in this situation, I said, I won't be able to take care of you. And he just said, well, I says, I just don't want to be institutionalized. And I said, well, of course not. I said, I would hire people to help me. Well, when that time came, it, 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 it happened so quickly, though it didn't really. I mean, he was in hospice. I think he enrolled in Feb- early February, and he died late May. So over that time, I think that someone should have talked with me about sort of really what to expect in terms of care needed and all of that. Maybe the social worker. I'm, I'm just not sure who it should have been. Okay, so there was that. So suddenly, suddenly John is incapacitated. And at that point, he was moved into a hospice facility. And much to my relief. But then I realized, oh, my God, this smacks of institutionalization. This is not wanted. <laughs> you know, so I talked with John. I said, you know, they have a bed for you there. Would you be willing to go? And he said, yes. So I thought, well, you know, that's his gift to me, uh, the gift of some adopt my love who's dying. So he did. So so we get to this. It was a lovely it really was a, in a lovely setting in Arlington, Virginia, a, just a, a small bed facility. It had one time been a school, I believe. So John, uh, who always had a good appetite, uh, he's eating, and all of a sudden, suddenly, about three or four days after he's been, I mean, the hospice doctor, had, the physician had said, you know, we're going to, he said, I've given John an injection, and we call this the honeymoon. And he'll be, he'll be alert for about three to four days, and then he'll go to sleep until the end. So uh, that gave a chance, you know, for his brother and his brother's wife to come, and we were all, you know, on site. And a nurse I'd never seen before appears at the foot of the bed and says to me, he says, You've got some decisions to make. <laughs> I said, "What?" He said, "I said, what do you mean?" And he said, "Well, you have to decide what where John's going. <laughs> is he going home with you or to a nursing home or what? You know." And John is 
hearing this, and I, I'm mortified that he's hearing someone talk about him like this. That was unpleasant, <laughs> to say the least. I said, you know, what's going on? And now I look back, and I, I think, you know, perhaps there was a Medicare reg that if, you know, maybe people can stay only so many days in these facilities, but... I had been told that John would be there until the end. I said, is he overstaying his honeymoon? I mean, what what's going on? I, it's just, so that was, but the other, the care in the facility and, and the, the nurses who were there and the volunteers were wonderful, the nurses with this one exception. Mm-hmm. And okay. um, that was very unsettling to me. As you say, the, the medical medical care system, I mean, John's oncologist, Dr. Heyer, took that Hippocratic oath, and he was there to keep John well. And then when John said no more treatment, then that that was the end. And it was, it was sort of, you know, it's just a bit startling to sort of say goodbye. <laughs> That's how it, he's geared to, to try to keep people alive, not to say, you know, that, that, this, I, I think it's it. I think it's very hard for doctors to watch their patients go. Oncology is a very difficult field in that respect, and yet I think it's so important that part of that journey is helping people through that end phase. And uh, it sounds like we need some advocacy for doctors either doing more of that themselves, which is hard with the way insurance is these days, um, or having someone in their office at least who can can be that touchstone and, and to be there uh, right until the end because it, it's a reassuring touchstone to the patient and to the family to at least have that person around. Yes, I think that, would, that sounds so necessary. I mean, it, it would have been really helpful to me and probably to John. I mean, yes. he really, yes. really liked that. But I think it was very hard, for, I think, for Dr. Heyer to to realize that, that John was, was dying. I mean, he had, they both, uh, you know, it was just hard. Yeah, like you say, our, our job is keeping people alive. And so it's very hard when that doesn't happen. We feel as if somehow we're failing. And yet I, I had a lot of respect for Dr. Kevorkian and, and the way he could honor people's desire to go ahead and let nature take its course instead of continuing to perpetuate people sometimes by very artificial means. Yeah. Uh, because that's not a kindness either. You know, sustaining life just for the fact of it. Uh, I'm sure John would not have wanted that. I know I wouldn't want that, Uh, but it's it's a very very difficult tightrope to walk, and uh, very difficult for an awful lot of people to talk about. Uh, There was did you there was an article in the Times in the last week or so by a doctor who was talking about the legislation in California that had passed some not that long ago allowing doctors to assist with death and how uncomfortable he was mm-hmm. with that. And mm-hmm. then he referred to, I think it's a Dr. Lonnie Shavelsman or Shavel in mm-hmm. California who's really, really did a lot of research and, and work in preparing criteria for, 
and and I think he'd been approached by 398 individuals requesting help with death, and he'd accepted 79 of them. But mm-hmm. he, you know, this this doctor who was writing the column was was very appreciative of the work that Shavelson had done, but uh, it admitted how uncomfortable he was when he was first faced with the request by someone. And he he didn't grant it to the person who had asked. And, it, it, well, it was a whole, the man who was just in his, he was 60, I think, and he apparently was had a, a terminal illness, and he did die. of This doctor felt he, he wanted to try antidepressants, on, and he was willing to try the antidepressants. And he said, if you don't feel better in four weeks, let's talk again. Well, he didn't see him again, but he understood that he went into a nursing home and he died of natural causes three months later. Mm-hmm. And he, he's, it's interesting. But I think it is very hard. I understand how hard it is for doctors. It's hard, hard, hard for everybody, and it's it's hard to to talk to a family and and let them know that that's that's happening. Uh, it, that is part of life. I mean, I, I really felt for the the family in England, uh, you know, who had that baby with a rare disease, but I also felt for the doctors in the hospital who were looking at their efforts as being so futile, and they were looking at the quality of life that baby would not have, and so it's a uh, it's a place where we need to be training everybody in more feeling and more talking and more doing, and maybe that's a, an area we both can help people with. Anyway, I, I I hear at times you're saying you're retired, and at other times you're you're working and traveling. My sense is that you're you're moving more into writing and speaking and traveling. Is is that what you're doing with your life now? Well, I um, this is a part. Of- for so long, I was writing and rewriting, <laughs> and then suddenly, I found an agent and a publisher. And the past year was sort of doing everything necessary to make the book really a tangible, a tangible book in hand. And now, um, I've had a number of readings. I think I've had ten readings. There was a launch here in Santa Fe. The book was released Valentine's Day. Which which seemed right with the title of Banged Up Heart, but um, <laughs> in any case, so there was a, a launch at an independent bookstore here in Santa Fe, which is very good in, in February, and then I have been I I've I had readings in Louisville, Kentucky, Virginia, Washington, Virginia, and New York, in uh, Manhattan, and my last reading was at a wonderful bookstore in Winnetka, Illinois, called the Bookstall. So I'm I'm sort of I need to get quiet enough to start writing again. But now I'm I'm doing a number of I was asked to teach a memoir writing workshop. I mean I was one of several teaching, and I enjoyed that very much. That was in Albuquerque, and I've I've done various interviews. And I would like to do I would like to do some speaking. I mean I think that you know the topics of grief, loss, are sort of obvious. Uh, And I don't know if this would be to widow and widower groups or uh, just who exactly, but those those seem sort of obvious. And then I think this communication about death and and dying and and talking about it is really important, which, you know, you 
bring up. I mean, it's important, and we so don't see death as part of the cycle of life. And so then we're shocked. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know how to deal with it. You know, people just, you know, put it under the rug. And and someone who uh, read, or before she read my book, she says, Shirley, she says, I just sweep things under the rug. I said, well, eventually you might trip over them. So you know, be careful. You better do something about it. Yes. <laughs> right, right. So I haven't, I haven't really done a lot of speaking, but I, I, I would like to. I see, I see that as, as, as a possibility. And then there are also more possible readings, but I, I'm sort of giving myself this year, the rest of this year, to do whatever sort of evolves. And then next year, I really want to start writing again. So, and that next I, book is going to be on? Well, it's, it's an exploration <laughs> of my, <laughs> about the, my relationship with my mother. <laughs> and okay. it's not a typical, I don't think it's a typical, I don't know that's a typical <laughs> relationship. I mean, people say, oh, yeah, I know all about mothers and daughters. I don't, not exactly all you knew about mothers and daughters. <laughs> I mean, I'm ex- and exploring, and um, we'll see. I mean, I'm... I, I'm tended to the, the working title in my mind is is lost in Tunisia, <laughs> but that's, wow. you know, I, I don't know. It, it will either be a memoir or maybe a fictionalized. I'm not a fictionalized memoir because I have great gaps between mm-hmm. things. I don't know. I have to. I'm, I'm sure it will be another thrilling and exciting book. I know you're also contemplating uh, writing on women who are still active between the ages of 60 and 90, and, and that will be an exciting one as well. If people want to get hold of you about speaking or something of that sort, where can they reach you, Shirley? Well, they can, they can reach me at my email address, which is... Shirley Mellis Writer at gmail.com and it's S H I R L E Y M E L I S W R I T E R at gmail.com. I do have a web I do have a website. It's www.shirleymellis.com. That tells people a bit more about me and my book and there is I do have a blog on that. Super. And I think I also have a publicist, but I I think they could con- con- contact me directly is probably the best. Okay. Okay. Well, I I have no doubt there will be people wanting to contact you, and I will certainly encourage it. Shirley, it has been such a wonderful delight and pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, very much want to keep in contact with you and see what you're doing on further in your life. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you, Judy. It truly has been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. This is Dr. Judy Cook, and I want to thank you for listening to Shrinkwrapped. If you'd like to hear more information, more podcasts, or have a place to contact me, please go to my website, which is godrjudy.com. That's spelled G-O-D-R-J-U-D-Y. I look forward to our next visit. Thank you again. 
Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.